Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. From defending her brother from the bullies as a child to reporting in the darkest and most dangerous corners on earth, Janine De Giovanni has always had a fierce need to fight for justice and provide a voice for the voiceless. Janine De Giovanni is a multi-winning war reporter and author who has covered nearly every major conflict since the 1980s. Her focus is on war crimes, global terrorism, refugee issues, and sexual violence during wartime. She's currently a senior fellow and professor at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. She's also a 2019 recipient of the prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we get a chance to learn what it's like to be a war reporter whose job involves witnessing the most gruesome acts of violence and what insights and wisdom she has taken from these experiences. Janine shares the transformational experience of one photograph that changed the trajectory of her life and took her down this journalistic path. She also shares what the language of war means to her and the role that it's had on her personally and professionally. Lastly, Janine provides a beautiful conclusion of how the United States can heal from centuries of systematic racism based on her research of countries that have made comebacks from brutal civil wars. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide, and as always, kindly leave a review. Without further ado, I bring you Janine DeGiovanni. Janine DeGiovanni, how are you today? I'm fine. Great. Well, it's great to have you here, Janine. I've been an admirer of your work for a while. And the way I like to start my conversations is to simply ask you, in your own words, how would you describe what you do? I think of myself as a human rights reporter, but less of a journalist and more of an anthropologist because I, what I really try to do is to record and document testimonies of people who either are suffering or have suffered grave injustice and don't have the ability to bring themselves forward to to receive justice. So I tend to work with people that have suffered war crimes or crimes against humanity who are either in conflict situations or post-conflict situations. How did you decide to get into this type of work? Like, What was the catalyst for you to step into this space? I can't imagine that you you woke up one morning and you thought to yourself, I want to be an anthropologist that essentially gives uh, a voice to the voiceless. How does that kind of, how did that happen in your life? No, not at all. I mean, first and foremost, I just, I really hate bullies. Whether it's the kid on the playground who I see bullying someone who's smaller or weaker or poor or just people that that think because they are powerful or rich or privileged have the right to make someone else's life a misery. When I was growing up in, in school, I grew up in New Jersey and I went to a Catholic school and it, it was very different times than it is now. I mean, now bullying is a big, you know, it, it, schools and teachers and educators are very conscious of that. But in my day, you know, children were ruthlessly bullied if they came to school with the wrong clothes or they came from poor families. And 
And I just always remember having this sense of how wrong it was. And one of my earliest memories is I'm the youngest of seven children, and I was walking home with two of my brothers, who are both, by the way, uh, deceased now, who both died very young, very tragically. And the younger one of them, who is the one closest to my age, but who is still older than me, there was a, an older boy who was bullying him. And he took his homework and he ripped it up. And my brother started crying. He must have only been about eight, maybe nine years old. And I was about seven. And even though this boy who had ripped up my brother's homework was twice my size and, you know, I think he was an eighth grader, which means he must have been about 14. And I took my backpack and I swung it like, um, who's that biblical character, Samson? And I swung it and I swung it and, and I crashed it down on his head and I broke his nose. And, <laughs> but I defended my, my brother who I could see was was very vulnerable and, and fragile. And I think, you know, I remember that night going home and the boy whose nose I had broken, his mother called and told my mother I was a vicious animal. And my mother defended me, but she was also angry at me because she, she, you know, she felt that I hadn't responded in the right way. But I think I responded in exactly the right way. You know, I, I just couldn't stand to see someone I loved being bullied like that. So I think bullying comes in all forms. You know, you either get a Donald Trump, who's a bully, or you get a Bashar al-Assad, who's a bully, or you get kids at school. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. Then how did that experience manifest itself in your life where it took you from the playgrounds of, of New Jersey to some of the darkest places in the world to cover the most atrocious and dangerous stories of people committing violence against each other? Well, it was very formulative, that, that moment. And also, remember, I was growing up in the kind of post-civil rights time. I was growing up in a, a suburban town in New Jersey where black people lived on one side and white people lived on the other. And I don't even think there was one black kid in my school, my private Catholic school. It was just an act of fate that I was born white and privileged and had a private school education. And it was a given that I was going to go to university and that I would somehow be successful in one way or the other, whether I got married and had children or whatever. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about where my next meal was coming from. You know, my parents were married. There was never an issue that my father wasn't going to pay child support. Um, so all of this, you know, really struck me at, at a really young age. But the real thing that turned me was when I was a graduate student and I was studying comparative literature and I had absolutely no desire to be a journalist. I, I did want to be a writer all my life, but I didn't particularly want to be a reporter. I picked up a newspaper and I saw a photograph of an Israeli soldier in a, in a dump truck burying alive a Palestinian teenager with sand and laughing. And it was the first Palestinian intifada uprising. And basically it was the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, coming down hard against these young Palestinian protesters. And during the first intifada, it was called the Revolution of Stone. And they were, you know, throwing stones. They were trying, trying to get something 
back that was extremely too important to them, their freedom and their dignity. I really don't know why, and I've thought about this a lot, and I've talked to a lot of people, and I often think that, you know, I did not choose my career, it chose me. Because from that moment, I saw that photograph, my life changed utterly. And I completely shifted my life in every way possible. I went to Israel, I met a human rights lawyer who was someone who changed my life forever because she was a Jewish woman, Holocaust survivor, but she was at that point one of the very few Israelis defending Palestinians in military court. So basically she had a job that meant that she lost. <laughs> she lost, but she believed in justice. And her life's work was trying to give justice to people that didn't have it. And after I saw, saw that and met her, there just was no way I could ever go back to the life that I was leading. Oh, that's a fascinating story. So it was this photograph that transformed your life that set you down this path of wanting to see these conflicts firsthand. That, that photograph was completely transformative. And so was my meeting with her. And so was the very first time I went to a refugee camp. I mean, it had a profound effect on me. It transformed me from, I mean, the root and the life that I was meant to live, which was to get married, to have children, maybe to have a little career, and but, but not to have a life's work. I mean, it's funny, right before you called, I was just going through, sorting through some things, and I have notebook after notebook after notebook, which goes back to the early 1990s of documentation from every violent conflict, basically, that took place from East Timor to Chechnya to Kosovo to Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Tunisia, Egypt. Um, and I've very carefully labeled them all and I have them alphabetically and I just pick them up now and then. And sometimes it's, you know, going back to something that happened in Africa in, in 1994 in Rwanda. It's almost too painful for me to read now. And, um, I always thought there'd come a time when I'd sit down with all of them and read through them. And I don't, I don't know if I'm actually going to be the person to do that. I hope when I'm gone, they'll go to an archive somewhere and there'll be a student <laughs> who will take them on. Um, cause there's a lot of information there and a lot of, a lot of witnessing, a lot of documentation, a lot of testimony that kind of comes together to show, you know, how Brutally, some people's lives are and were and, and continue to be. As somebody who's lived a life of covering war, experiencing it, losing people along the way, having people trying to kill you, nearly escaping death along the way, in your own words, how would you describe what it's like to experience war? During the war in, in Bosnia, Sarajevo, the, the siege of Sarajevo is really crucial to, it's another transformative moment for me, very crucial in forming me as the person I am today. I remember when I would come back, you know, I'd get a break every couple months and I would go back to London where I then lived and um, people would always say to me, what's it like to get shot at? And getting shot at was, that was the least of it. It wasn't the, the, the bombing or the shooting or the shelling or the, you know, being in a tr stuck in a trench. It was more 
um, the the day to day grinding down of your your soul of witnessing over and over things that you were helpless to prevent. And now I know that there's a term for that, and it's called moral injury, and it basically is a scar on your soul from, for instance. You know, if there were people standing near George Floyd as he was dying and didn't stop it, but wanted to, because they knew it was wrong, but they didn't intervene, um, something like that basically grips you and is something abhorrent to your moral compass. So for me, you know, seeing what I saw in Sarajevo, the systematic rape of women, twenty-five thousand women were raped. The genocide in Srebrenica of 8,000 Muslim men and boys, the destruction of a society, the destruction of a city, of, of towns, ethnic cleansing—it went against everything that I had been brought up to believe in my Christian upbringing, where you know people are supposed to be good and compassionate and kind and help each other. But war isn't that. War is people trying to destroy each other. Oh, that's a really interesting perspective, especially the idea of moral injury. That's something that people can understand even here in the United States. They don't have to go to a war zone to better understand that. Janine, I'd like to unpack this idea. You said earlier about how Bosnia changed you, and it changed your understanding of war. In particular, in your TED talk, you you brought up a, a really interesting quote that I'd like you um, to kind of unpack, but. Before you do, I'd like to share it. It's this, you can only love one war and the rest is responsibility. I'm curious to know, what did you mean by that? That's um, actually Martha Gellhorn. Um, that's her quote. And for her, that one love was the Spanish Civil War. And for me, it was very much Bosnia. I think what, what it means is that, and I, I know with some of my colleagues who are career war reporters, There's always something, one place, whether it's Afghanistan or Africa. I mean, all of these places meant a lot to me, and I never, ever, ever reported anywhere in a kind of cavalier way. Like, and I do know many people that do this. You know, they they fly in, they're looking for a scoop, they get the scoop, and I don't really know if the people themselves matter to them. It's not the story that's important; it's the people behind it. So, what I meant by that quote is essentially: there's that time, that place, that country, that war, that changes you forever and makes you fall under its spell. And in Sarajevo, you know, it was much, much more than work to me. It never was work. It was about trying desperately to stop a war and to stop an oncoming genocide that we saw coming, my colleagues and I, and desperately tried to get, at that point, President Clinton and the Europeans on board to try to prevent the genocide of Srebrenica. And it didn't happen. I teach a course at Yale now, and in one of those courses, I teach something about a course about humanitarian intervention and the failures of Bosnia and the failures of Rwanda where one million people died in three months, unspeakable. And yet, if leaders, if the international community really wants to stop a war, they can very easily. And there's examples of it. Sierra Leone is one, Kosovo is another. I'm not someone that believes in war at all, but I do believe in saving lives, and I do believe in stopping 
the eternal suffering of people. Look at Syria right now. You know, we're going into 10 years, 10 years of a, of a horrible, painful war that could have easily been stopped many years ago. Oh, that's really interesting. I also think the work that you do and the way you present your work actually comes across in such a way where it actually shows the fact that you're genuinely interested in the people behind these stories. So I'd like to ask now, given your experience in war and the aftermath, how does one find, how does a society find love and healing? I think um, love and healing for a society comes about when there's justice. And I'm researching a lot right now about truth and reconciliation committees and how the countries that have managed to make comebacks from really brutal wars, South Africa or Rwanda, is usually because they have a system of transitional justice where the victims are able in some ways to look their perpetrator in the eye and say, why did you do that? Tell me why you did that. Tell me how my son died. Tell me how my husband disappeared. Tell me why you took away my children. And while I think there is never forgetting, there is forgiving. I mean, look at Mandela. Mandela was an imperfect person. We know that. But he, he brought a country back from 40 years of apartheid, of the pain of apartheid, by instilling in people the concept of forgiveness. And I'm thinking a lot about this in terms of the, the United States right now um, and the, the, the killing of George Floyd and the protests, because I believe that until the United States addresses the pain of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation, and which were in a sense apartheid, and what happened to African-American people in the United States until now and, in, and going on now, we will never, ever have a healing or a reconciliation. I just don't think it's possible. Until we have a full, full sense of justice, that people feel that they are not constantly subjugated and that their ancestors who were subjugated have had some way they're able to come to a place of forgiveness. So it's a very interesting concept because war is very brutal and forgiveness is very gentle and to make that that transition that bridge requires tremendous tremendous faith and love you said love and love is is a part of it yeah you're right it's really fascinating in order for a country and a society and a community to make any progress on the brutality and the loss that they've faced they have to come to an acceptance and then from that place of acceptance, it's possible to essentially move forward. As long as the past is recognized, as long as there's a conversation where questions are asked about the things that people need to know the most about. They need to have the answers to the questions that they've been holding for the longest time. Another way to kind of think about it is a community, a society, and a nation needs to go through the ugly in order to find a place of forgiveness it has to confront the ugliness that it's experienced and that it's implemented in order to get to a place where there can be love, healing, and forgiveness. You know, each, each case obviously is, is individual, but I think the closest 
example I can give is let's look at Bosnia and the, the many women, 25,000 it's estimated, who were raped systematically, meaning that this a command came from high for Muslim women to be raped by Serbian men so that their gene pool would be diluted. So essentially, so they'd get pregnant with, with half Serb children. Really horrifying concept. Well, those women, many of whom, so those children now are 25, 26 years old, those babies that were born. If they could see their rapists in prison, or at least having gone to trial, there'd be some way that they could acknowledge the pain that they went through. But in most of the cases, those women have to face their rapists every day in the villages where they live because so few of those men have been convicted, have been taken to The Hague. So in fact, the people who are shameful, the ones who feel the shame, are the women who have been raped, or the victims rather than the perpetrators. So, I mean, getting back to you asking me why I do this kind of work, I want to be able to give those women, or men, a voice to tell me their stories. You know, I think one of the best questions you can ever, and I teach my students at Yale this as well, if you say to people, what happened to you? It's almost as though you, you're allowing them, you're giving them a right to name something, whether it's rape, whether it's torture, whether it's they were forced to flee their homes, their refugees, whether it's systematic violence, domestic violence, um, institutional racism. You know, I could go on. But you're letting them tell their story. And storytelling, you know, it's a new buzzword now in, in the field of journalism, but um, storytelling is very, very powerful. And I remember um, years ago meeting a Native American shaman who told me that modern culture has lost something, which is that in the old days, in, in many cultures, when people first woke up, the first thing they would do is they would go sit by the fire and make, you know, make some, <laughs> something hot to drink or whatever and talk about their dreams and what happened to them in their dreams or talk about their feelings or talk about what happened to them. And in modern society, we've come so far from, from talking about things. We're a corporate society. Globalization has taken over and, um, in a weird kind of way, this whole COVID crisis, I think, has been a reckoning in many ways because people have been forced to slow down, to be by themselves, to be quiet, to have things taken away from them, work, subways, theater, movies, and they were left at home with themselves if they were lucky enough to have a roof over their head to think about life and about the bigger, the bigger issues. So in a way, I wonder, and this isn't for the people who've died or who have been ill because I feel terrible about that, but it's, it's been something important for our society as well because it certainly has been a reboot that our planet has needed. No, I think there's a lot of truth to that as well. So now with somebody who's seen a lot of chaos and destruction from various parts of the world, who's now sitting in Paris, how do you as an American who was born in the United States see and perceive the chaos that's happening now in our country? I, you know, I left America when I was very young. I was 19 
and I went to live in London. And in 2004, I moved to Paris. But of course, I was always on the road in Africa, the Middle East, the Balkans, working. Two years ago, I went to live in the U.S. to take a job at Yale, teaching, but also so my son, who's 16, could have uh, an American high school education. I, I thought it was, I do believe it's, America has a greatness, which many cultures lack, and that is the ability to make you believe you can do whatever you want. Now, I would have said that stronger before the George Floyd incident, because I believe that also pertains to a certain class of people. My son has a scholarship to a extremely elite and incredibly intellectual, intellectually rigorous school in New York um, that I could never in my wildest dreams afford to pay for. Um, he's, he's on a scholarship there. Um, and the one thing that makes me hugely sad is that that kind of education is not available to every single kid in the United States. It's only available to elite. It's only available to bankers or people like me who know how to get the system to get a scholarship. I mean, that really troubles me. The other thing I feel about America is that we've come so far from, from who we are. You know, America was founded on the most beautiful of principles, um, the tenets of democracy, which are human rights, rule of law, and freedom of expression. And we have a president right now who abhors and hates and has made a mockery of all of those things. He's above the law, he has contempt for human rights, and he hates the press. So it's been disturbing for me to live in America now, as much as I, there are wonderful things and wonderful people. And I love the fact that unlike Europe, you can become whoever you want to be if you have drive and ambition which in Europe you cannot. You're often saddled with social class or economic class or racism of a different kind. You know, if you're a North African in France, you're gonna have a pretty difficult time getting into universities, getting an apartment that you want, getting a lease. It's still very much embedded into the system. Things are changing, you know, but I do think Europe is old and America is new. And in America, there is this freshness that allows for originality and new ideas and brilliance and also striving, which is something, again, Europe doesn't, it doesn't really happen. You know, it's, um, people prefer to have a, a beautiful quality of life and, you know, to have good vacations and good childcare and rather than work themselves to death. Um, which I think Americans work far too hard. There, there has to be a balance between the two cultures. Um, you know, Europe needs a bit of a kick in the backside to, to reboot themselves, to have more originality and to be, to think out of the box. And America needs to slow down a bit and, you know, realize that we are on this planet for a very, very, very short time. And in that time, as well as making your mark professionally, you need to give something back. You need to leave something behind that's going to be timeless and will last forever. Yeah, I think that's really great. That's wonderful perspective. You know, as I was doing my research on Eugenia, and I read that you had fallen in love with another war reporter. And the reason why is because you both spoke the same language. You both spoke the language of war. And so I'm kind of curious to know if you could unpack what exactly does that mean? What exactly is the language of war? 
And how did that inform your notion of falling in love with somebody? Um, it was that we didn't have to speak to each other about that. We'd seen the same things. So I think, you know, it would probably be very hard for me, although I'm not ruling anything out, to be in a relationship with someone who had lived an incredibly privileged life where they, where they hadn't gone through much, where they hadn't gone through anything. And my, the most interesting people to me are people who in some way have been scarred by something, you know, whether they've gone through difficult childhoods, whether they've grown up in difficult countries, whether they've survived difficult divorces. Those are the people who have texture and layers to their character. And I'm more drawn to them. I'm not saying people who are dysfunctional, by the way. That's a whole different thing. And I'm, I'm very self-protective of myself. So I don't tend to, you know, I, I'm very cautious about who I let near me in my life. Because my work is so damaging that my private life has to be very protected and very safe and very beautiful. I like living in places that are very, you know, very homey. I, my friend, I have very, very, very close and devoted and loyal and loving friends. So I, I have a real, it's very important to me because of the work I do that I'm able to come back to a place where I feel safe. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you brought this up. What you just said really resonates with me. It's this thing where I feel like the most beautiful people in the world don't just happen. They have gone through major loss and they've gone through major adversity, and they've been able to find the strength to get to the other side. Being in the dark, they've navigated, they've struggled, but in the end, they were able to find the light, and those people are the most beautiful people in the world. So I'd like to change gears and ask, as somebody who's seen so much loss, death, and destruction, how do you then describe what it means to actually live? I think then you live so much more fully because you're so aware of the fragility of life. You know, like for instance, I have never, sometimes I, actually my mother always says to me, you have to be more tolerant of people who haven't experienced what you have. Because for instance, if my sister is complaining and she, you know, she has big issues, but I always say to her, but you're not in a refugee camp and, and your, your husband hasn't been killed with a machete. I try to put it in perspective, but then I realize that, you know, white privileged people's problems are their problems and it is a big deal. I mean, I remember once going over a friend's house and she was a very wealthy woman married to a banker, two kids, and she was in absolute hysterics because the builders had done something wrong in her kitchen. I don't know. And I, I, I have really little tolerance for that. And that's, that's a flaw in my character because I really need to be tolerant because not everyone has had the privilege that I've had of being able to live and work in the places that I have worked. And that experience has made me who I am, but it's also made me a bit, um, not arrogant, but the problems of a housewife a kind of banal day-to-day -day living like I'm I'm worried because my kid didn't get into Harvard doesn't figure on my radar. Um, I kind of tend to try 
to just be so grateful that I have my health, a roof over my head, that my son is healthy. These things mean a lot to me, that I haven't been driven away by a militia at gunpoint. I haven't found my mother in a mass grave. I haven't been chained to a bed and held there because I was pregnant, the way I've seen some women in Afghanistan after right after the Taliban fell. I haven't been put in a psychiatric home because I've spoken out against something and the country I happen to live in is able to do that. So my gratitude for being able to live as a free woman is enormous. My gratitude for being able to earn my own living, to not be dependent on anyone else, is also huge. You know, I think I tend to live in a very, very different way than most people because I feel so lucky. I feel so, so lucky. And, you know, yet I've sustained a huge amount of loss. I've, I lost two of my brothers within seven years. My marriage broke up. You know, I've lost many, many people I love who were killed in war and conflict. I, I've had numerous setbacks. I've had health difficulties like everyone, right? But, but I'm alive and I'm here. And I had the fate of being born in a country that wasn't at war. So that's how I tend to live. Every time I turn on a shower and there's running water, I swear to you, I am grateful. Oh, that comment and that uh, perspective just resonates so much with me. And what I mean is that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique from 2005 until 2007. And uh, it's a place where I had to fetch my own water every single day. And I got malaria twice and uh, I had electricity half of the day. And people always ask me what that experience was like. And I tell them it was the best education of my life because every single morning when I turn on the faucet, I think to myself, thank God I don't have to fetch water today. And I share this story because I think that perspective just makes me so grateful, just so grateful every single day. And that's been with me since I've been 23 years old. So Janine, I'd like to be respectful of your time. And I'd like to wrap up my conversations with guests by asking one last question. What's your message for the world? My message for the world, I would say, is that we are, we are not here for a very long time. So try to, while at the same time, not making, um, you know, leave no trace, you know, meaning, uh, you know, take care of other people, don't destroy the planet. But remember that this isn't a dress rehearsal and whatever it is you want to do, do it now. Don't wait. Do good things be kind to one another, help each other, help the person next to you who needs it, and and just try to live in a way that's as meaningful and peaceful and gentle as you can. That's a wonderful message, Janine. Thank you for uh, the work that you do, and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. 
We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.